Well, if you have a Bible there with you this morning, if you want to turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, we're going to be reading Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And I'll ask, as is our custom, out of respect for the Word of God, that you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Mark writes, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The sentence of reading of God toward you may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, if you've been a believer in Christ for some time, uh, you've probably then, I hope, become familiar with a lot of God's word. Maybe not all of it, but a lot of things, much like the Gospels and things like that. And that familiarity is a really good thing. Becoming more and more familiar with the word of God is always a good thing for us as believers. That should be the norm. Um, But every once in a while, uh, especially if you're preaching, uh, we come across a passage of scripture, I think, that you could almost wish that you could read it one more time uh, with fresh eyes, as if you'd never read it before. And this this is one of those uh, passages for me. And the reason for that is, you know, what they say about familiarity, breeding contempt, reading the Bible, being familiar with the Bible, uh, it will never breed contempt in the eyes of of a believer, but it can sometimes lose a passage to kind of lose its punch, to lose the shock value that it really should have, the surprise that you get the first time you read some of these passages and think, what happened? What did they say? That kind of a thing. Um, some, some passages should be shocking to us, and sometimes familiarity with those passages kind of lessens that and dampens that down. And I think this is one of those Passages. You know, you've heard the, the old saying, uh, it, it's kind of silly to say it, but people say, expect the unexpected. Now, how do you do that? I don't know how that works, but, uh, but you know what it means. Well, the unexpected is all through this passage, if you're not familiar with it. If you're familiar with it, oh, yeah, that happened. Yeah, they dug a hole in the roof. Of course they dug a hole in the roof. Who wouldn't do that? People have, that happens all the time. Um, you know, well, the unexpected has happened in all kinds of ways in our passage, You know, sermons are sometimes interrupted by some pretty odd things, but it's not very often that men digging a hole in the roof above your head and lowering down a crippled man in front of you is one of them. 
I think that has to top the list. I'm having trouble thinking of something bigger than that. Now, I think in our day, we have a hard time imagining the crowd. You know, picture the biggest crowd you can think of. In our day, you usually would expect someone uh, to let a crippled person to the front of the line, right? You, you can't imagine people crowding, you know, elbowing their way in the door and not letting them, them in. Uh, but that seems to be what happens here in our text. He can't even get near the door. His friends are carrying him and no one will move. And there's too many people. We don't know how many people uh, were there. Uh, but we have a hard time picturing why would they just let the guy in, but he couldn't get in. The next unexpected thing in our text would be Jesus' words to the paralytic. Those words should shock us. What does he say in verse 5? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, take that by itself. And if you're re- you know you're reading the Bible, that wouldn't be shocking at all. That's, that's a good thing you'd hear. You hear all through Scripture in some ways. Uh, but is that what the paralytic was hoping to hear? Is that what his friends were expecting Jesus to say after all that work? Ripping through the roof, digging through, lowering down on, on, on cables or ropes or whatever it might have been. Is that what they were hoping to hear? You know, we, 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 we assume, without, I think with good reason, that they brought him to Jesus, even though the text doesn't say, does it? It doesn't say they brought him to Jesus to be healed. He was hoping to be healed. But I think we assume with good reason that that was why they brought him, that he might be healed, that he might walk again. And if you know the first chapter of Mark that we took some time to go through, uh, that seems to be the, the thing that happens over and over again. Mark chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, it says there, we saw this previously, that evening at sundown, remember it was the Sabbath, uh, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. It's quite the, quite the crowd. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. They, they recognized who he was. So what's been happening so far in this town, in Capernaum, is people hear about Jesus, and they bring everybody they can think of who's sick or oppressed by demons to him, and he heals them. Can imagine what that scene must have looked like. So, now Mark doesn't tell us. This is the other strange thing. Mark actually doesn't ever tell us the reaction of the of the paralytic or his friends. Uh, you know, if, if you've never read it before, my I would expect he'd say, "Hey, thanks for lowering that guy down, son. Your sins are forgiven." Now, my sermon, you know, go and go on. I would expect Mark to focus on the reaction of the man or of his friends who were presumably going to have to carry him back out, maybe hoist him back up and carry him off off the roof. We don't know. Uh, now, Mark doesn't tell us if the man was disappointed or perplexed at not being healed at first. Now, the fact that Mark does tell us in verse 5 that what does Jesus see? When Jesus saw their faith, I think that that alone suggests that somehow their reaction would have probably been a positive one. Either way, Mark doesn't focus on it at all, does he? He certainly doesn't show anything where the paralytic or his friends complain or object or say, well, wait, that's not why we're here. Uh, We just wanted a healing. We didn't want all this other stuff. It's not what what Mark tells us. Whose reaction does Mark focus on? Another unexpected reaction in the text. It's like Jesus answers a question that doesn't seem to be asked. And then the one that we expect to see reacting isn't the one that we see at all. We see the scribes reacting. And how do they react? It says in verses 6 to 7, they were questioning. 
or disputing in their hearts about the words of Christ. And they even accused him of blaspheming. That's a pretty, pretty big charge to be laying against, even in your mind, against Christ. Now, who were they? They were the religious leaders of the Jews, along with the Pharisees. Uh, if you weren't already familiar with the New Testament, and if you were familiar with, with, with uh, the nation of Israel and Judah in that day, in the, in the first century, when you heard scribe, you didn't think bad guy in the black hat. When you heard scribe, you thought good guy, white hat. If anybody was following the Lord, it was, it was them. If anybody should have been expected to embrace Christ as the Messiah, it should have been them. If anybody in that room should have recognized the Messiah when he showed up, it shouldn't have just been those demons that he had to tell to be quiet. It should have been the scribes. And yet, what do they do? They accuse him, at least in their minds, of blasphemy. You know, this passage in, in the beginning of Mark chapter 2 introduces us to the theme of conflict and opposition to Jesus Christ. From within the ranks of the Jewish religious leadership, that's, that theme, if you read the whole of chapter 2, is found all throughout the chapter. It's, it's the theme of the chapter. Jesus does something, heals someone, forgives someone, and the religious leaders of the day don't embrace him, don't support him, don't cheer him on. They oppose him. Conflict is the theme of chapter 2. And that theme is going to run throughout the end of the Gospel of Mark, culminating in the crucifixion of Christ. Well, this morning we're going to look at three things from our text. We're going to look at and see, first, the paralytic carried to Jesus. The paralytic carried to Jesus. Secondly, the paralytic forgiven by Jesus. And the third thing is the paralytic healed by Jesus. So the first thing is that we see here is the paralytic being carried to Christ. Mark tells us that word got around quickly. Remember when the, the man who was leprous, when Jesus told him, you just go show yourself to the priest, offer what, what Moses commanded for, you know, to, to, for a testimony to him, and keep it down. Don't tell anybody about this. Just do what I tell you to do. And what did he do? He preached. It literally says he preached the word about it. And he did it so far and wide that Jesus couldn't openly enter a town. But he had to go out in, desolate, in wilderness places again. Another theme in Mark. Well, Jesus finally finds a way to get back into Capernaum. But it doesn't take long for, before people realize he's at, his, he's at home. And so what happens once they find out he's home? A very large crowd shows up. In fact, in verse 2, we're told the crowd is so large that many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. You know, in chapter 1, the whole city was at the door. Here in chapter 2, I think the implication is Somehow the crowd's bigger than it was even back then. It kind of sounds like a fire code violation in our day. You'd have to send people home. Like, we can't do this. We can't, uh, we're going to get shut down. We're going to get arrested. Um, and what does Jesus do when this crowd shows up? Maybe close the windows, pull the shades. That's, that's, what, that's what we would do. No, he preaches the word to them, verse 2. You know, if you're going to gather a crowd around, a crowd around Jesus, he's going to preach. He's going to preach to them. Now, that crowd sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? You know, pastors, preachers, we like crowds. Maybe not in our living rooms. Maybe not uninvited and while we're unprepared. Jesus didn't have that problem. He was always prepared. But as, as impressive as that crowd probably seems to us, uh, that crowd probably wasn't a welcome sight to everybody, was it? In more than one way. Certainly the scribes who were sitting there 
probably weren't very thrilled about it. Now, I, I have to ask, there's no room at the door. How did they get a seat? They probably weren't the first ones there. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, who else wasn't happy about seeing a crowd? That kind of a crowd. I, I'm assuming the guy's carrying the paralytic. You know, if it's me, and if I weren't too lazy to even carry the guy to begin with, which I probably would be, if I'm carrying this poor guy with three other guys and I see this crowd pouring out the front of the house, I'm probably going to look at my friend and say, hey, you know, maybe this isn't the right day. You know, this just wasn't meant to be today. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to, to wait. Now, one commentator has this to say about those crowds that you see throughout the book of Mark. He says, crowds form the audience for his teaching and are the object of his compassion. But Mark never describes crowds turning to Jesus in repentance and belief as the gospel requires. The single most common attribute of crowds in Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. Thus, despite Jesus' popularity, crowds are not the measure of success in Mark. They constitute outsiders who stand either in ambivalence or opposition to Jesus. Crowds are all through the book of Mark, especially these opening chapters. But if you read the whole book, I think you'll see that commentator is absolutely correct. And even today, I think that still holds true, doesn't it? Crowds are nice. But crowds are not the measure of success in ministry. We're not called to success, so-called. Success is measured by faithfulness to Christ's commission and his commandments and call. And that huge, that huge crowd at the house was nothing if they weren't an obstruction to those men carrying that paralytic. But they didn't let that stop them, did they? They did something really remarkable. They did something that sounds wrong. They do something that sounds kind of violent and intrusive, don't they? They don't just break in. They break in basically right in the middle of the service or right in the middle of Christ's preaching. They, they dug through the roof big enough, a big enough hole uh, to lower a man down on a mat to Jesus, right in the middle of, of everything. Now, this isn't the same as it would be in our day in our place and time. You know, houses weren't constructed out of the sturdiest materials in the world like ours are now. The repairs that were made necessary by this intrusion, this holy demolition crew, uh, they wouldn't require a call to farmer's insurance. They wouldn't require a, a construction contractor. Um, at the same time, this wasn't normal. We shouldn't read this and say, well, you know, they probably did this all the time. You know. they, they actually, their roofs were kind of their decks. They would put fences around them and things or, you know, so that nobody would fall off. You would go hang out on your roof. It wasn't uncommon for people to be on their roof. But at the same time, the roofs weren't made by this super hard, thick material. They were oftentimes thatch-like roofs with a mud, uh, a mud covering that was hardened. So they literally didn't just break through. They dug through the roof, and they made a hole in it. You can imagine, although uh, Mark doesn't tell us, I assume this kind of brought the sermon to a screeching halt. You're preaching, uh, people cough, people sneeze, people make noise, but usually you don't see somebody repelling from the roof or being lowered down through, through ropes. What did Jesus see? He saw them lowering their friend down by ropes, but what, how did Jesus see it? Did he see it as an unwelcome in, interruption in his sermon? Did he see it as rude? I would have seen it as rude. 
Uh, did he see it as a presumptuous act? Did it upset him or irritate him or vex him? No. In verse 5, Mark says that Jesus saw one thing. Jesus saw their faith. Not his faith. Their faith. Not just the man being lowered down, but the people that were lowering him down. And why is that? They were so determined to get this man to Jesus any way they could, no matter what it took to do it. And why was that? They really believed that if they could just get their friend to Jesus... He was not only able to heal their friend, that he'd be willing to heal their friend. You can imagine it. It might have felt like they were taking quite a chance. It's one thing to know he can do it. It's another thing to interrupt the whole shebang, lower their friend down, knowing that he could just say, you know, uh, not, not today, not, not like this, not now. They believed that Jesus was that kind of a friend of sinners, that he would help and heal their friend. And what a lesson is this, I think, for us. Do we bring our unsaved friends, loved ones, family members to the Lord Jesus Christ in prayer? Do we believe in his power and also in his willingness to save? Do we really believe he's willing to save? Look how quickly he receives these sinners. Look how quickly and how instantly he forgives this man. In the Gospels, do you ever see Jesus turning someone away who comes to him? I don't think you ever do. You see people turn away from him. You never see Jesus turn anyone away who comes to him in repentance and faith. It never happens. And he usually accepts them immediately and takes them in immediately. Let that be a lesson to you if you're sitting here, if you're sitting here this morning and you're still in your sins if you're doubting that Christ would ever take you in and forgive you, come boldly to him as these men who brought their helpless friend. Know that the one who comes to him in faith and repentance, he will never cast out. Remember, if you were here last week, that leper in the previous passage that Christ cleansed, that leper was really a picture in some sense of our condition outside of Christ, wasn't he? It wasn't just about healing a man from his disease. Remember what the, what the passage meant, if you were here, what it said? He didn't say, if you're willing, you can make me healed. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Cleansing is the focus of that entire passage. It doesn't say healing, it says cleansing, cleansing, make clean, make clean. Well, just as that passage, just as that leper showed us and was a picture of our condition before a holy God outside of Christ, that we're unclean before a holy God. We're unclean down to the bone. We're unfit for heaven, unfit for God to be in his presence. And yet Jesus cleansed that leper. He cleansed him. Well, now in our passage, I think Mark is showing us, through an actual occurrence, Mark is showing us another snapshot of our condition outside of Christ. Every sinner outside of Christ is helpless, unable to do anything to save ourselves. If anyone is to be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ himself has to do all the saving. He has to do all of it. Only Christ can grant new life unto those who are dead in sin. Only Christ can draw a sinner unto himself and grant faith and repentance unto life. How desperately do we as sinners need the Savior? You don't yet know him by faith. Don't put it off. 
thinking that it's all within your ability somehow to turn yourself to him whenever you wish. Don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, the second thing we see in our text is the paralytic forgiven, forgiven by Jesus. You know, again, we we assume that this man came to Christ for healing, for physical healing, that he might walk again. But what he got was actually something far greater. For what does Jesus say at first? Does he say, arise and walk? He eventually gets there, but does he say that at first? No. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I think, if nothing else, this should remind us and teach us of the priority of the forgiveness of sins. Which is more important, physical healing or forgiveness? Which is more important? What was this man, this crippled man's biggest problem? It's easy to look at him from the eyes of flesh and go, he couldn't walk. That's a big problem. None of us would want to have that that problem. Being crippled, was being crippled his biggest problem? Or was being a sinner in the presence of a holy God his biggest problem? His biggest problem was absolutely, without a doubt, his sins. And so his greatest need, and our greatest need, is to be forgiven. And so Jesus did more than he was asking him for, not less. My first impression when I read the text, no matter how many times I've read it, my gut reaction, I have to admit, is he did less. He came for healing and all he got was forgiveness. Is that right? No, that's backwards. He gave him far more than he came to get. Physical healing, as great as that is, did not require the cross. Jesus didn't need to come at all in order to heal that man and make him walk again. He did not have to become incarnate and live and suffer and die and be buried and rise the third day just to heal someone. Didn't need to do any of that to heal someone and make them able to walk again. Without the incarnation, though, without the cross, without the resurrection on the third day, there can be no forgiveness. It's a far bigger thing to be forgiven of sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Because we are all sinners, our greatest need is forgiveness. And that's why Jesus came. There's forgiveness to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 130, verses 3 to 4, it says, If you, O Lord, should mark, count, iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's the answer to that question? No one. If God were even now to keep track of your sins and count them and keep them uh, marked, no, none of us could stand. But he says the next verse, verse 4, But with you, the Lord, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's good news for sinners like us. We can't stand before a holy God on our own if he should mark iniquities. But with him there is forgiveness. With him, verse 7 says, there's plentiful or abundant redemption. If you think you've sinned too much, Psalm 130, verse 7 says, there's abundant redemption. The price has been more than paid for all of our sins, as great as they are. And those who truly know what it is to be forgiven through faith in Christ, learn to fear him. That verse may sound strange to you. With you there is forgiveness that you may be 
feared. Those who know what it is to be forgiven by Christ learn to fear the Lord. We don't learn Christ in such a way as to ever dream of continuing in our old ways of sin. Praise God that there's forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. Real forgiveness. And the the strange thing about this account, I think, is that, again, we're not told the response of the paralytic, are we? We're not told what he thought of it. We're not told how he felt. And we're told, instead, the response of the scribes. Now, were they happy about it? Absolutely not. Instead of rejoicing at the greatest news a person could ever hear, forgiveness, they murmured, they grumbled. In verse 7, we're told that they were questioning or debating in their hearts, saying, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, there are words here in our text when they say, why does this man speak like that? Those words are dripping with contempt for Christ. They know who he is. It's as if they can't bring themselves to say his name. They're basically, this is another, we we say it like this. Who does he think he is? Get a load of this guy. What in the world? Who does he think he is to say something like that? He's blaspheming. Blasphemy was a capital offense. Blasphemy wasn't, hey, he said something a little bit wrong. They're saying he deserved to die for what he said. It's ironic. He had to die to be able to say what he said and have it actually count and have it actually be true that that man could be forgiven. Now, now in a sense, they weren't wrong, were they? In a sense. Part of, in part, they weren't wrong. And why is that? If he weren't God, he would be blaspheming, wouldn't he? They had that part right. The problem is Jesus is God. And Jesus was making that exact claim. They, they didn't misunderstand him. They heard him exactly right. They knew, they knew, I don't know if anybody else in the room knew, they knew that if for him to say, he doesn't say, hey, God will forgive you. He says, son, your sins are, I'm forgiving you. That's really what he was saying. And they said, whoa, wait a minute. That's what God says. We don't say, I forgive you in the place of God. Jesus was. Jesus was saying, son, your sins are forgiven. So he really does have the authority to forgive sins because he is the son of God. But they refused to believe. They hated him. I mean, they didn't just not believe. They didn't just doubt. They hated him. They raged against him for it. Who were the real paralytics in this story? The man on the bed or the scribes sitting in the comfortable seats in the crowded room? Those religious leaders who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards and yet rejected and even hated the one whom those scriptures testified and pointed forward to Those were the real paralytics. What a terrible picture of sin and unbelief and hardness of heart. They weren't just church members. They were the ones doing half the teaching. And yet when Christ was staring them in the face, they hated him and they rejected him. And that leads us to our third point, the paralytic being healed by Jesus. In verses 8 to 12 it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. That's an understatement. The whole thing they never saw before. Man going through the ceiling, Jesus healing him. Um, You know, you would think, you would hope. The way the text reads is that the, the scribes, they weren't saying these things out loud. They weren't huddled in the corner saying, hey, psst. He's, he's saying he's God. This is blasphemy. They were questioning or debating these things in their hearts. They're saying, he's not God. And all of a sudden, what does Jesus do? He answers the questions that they were thinking in their hearts to themselves. You'd think they would have been like, well, wait a minute. Maybe we should rethink this. That's never happened to me. It's probably never happened to you. He, he wasn't just looking at their faces and going, they look puzzled. He knew what they were thinking. Who does that but God alone? And yet they still didn't believe. Well, the question that he asks to them has kind of puzzled people for a long time. It's puzzled commentators and Bible teachers, maybe since the first day it was written. Maybe even the first people that heard the story read were like, time out, I have a question. That doesn't sound harder. That sounds easier than the other thing. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your rise, take up your bed, and walk. Well, in one sense, it sounds easier to tell him he's forgiven, doesn't it? Who can disprove it? There's nothing outward to, to, to debunk it or to prove it. Uh, you don't have to verify it in any real way. In that sense, it would be much harder, I think, to tell him to rise, take up his bed, and walk. Because if he doesn't rise, take up his bed, and walk, you're, you're kind of unmasked as a, as a charlatan, as a false teacher. You have to actually be able to do that to make that man whole again. You need to have the power to heal. But in one sense, it's much more difficult, I think, to tell him that his sins were forgiven. Why? A lot of reasons. One, it would take the cross. To say your sins are forgiven demands and necessitates the cross of Christ. It would mean that Jesus has to be God in the flesh. That's exactly who Jesus is. The cross is exactly what he endured in order that that man might be forgiven. And Jesus spoke this word of forgiveness to the paralytic when everybody, including those scribes whose unbelieving hearts Jesus knew full well, were watching his interaction with them. You know, it's one thing if Jesus saw somebody off to the side during his teaching and leaned over and said, stay, you're forgiven. This guy just got let down through a hole in in the roof. Everybody's watching Jesus and this man, and he picks that time when all eyes and ears are on him to say what he said. To say, son, your sins are forgiven. The greatest words any human being has ever heard. And the greatest mouthpiece anybody's ever heard them from. Right from the the mouth of Christ. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was doing this on purpose. He could have waited. He could have done it afterward. He could have pulled the guy aside and healed him and, and forgiven him. He did it right in front of everyone to teach them and to teach us a point. And so Jesus healed the man. And he did just as Jesus said right away. Mark's favorite word, immediately, right? He rose, he says, you know, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And what does he do? He rose, immediately picked up his bed, 
and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This demonstrates, I think, at least three things. This healing, the healing of this paralytic. First, as Jesus said, what is, Jesus tells us why he's going to do it. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So the first thing it does is it proves, it shows us that Jesus really does have the authority on earth to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive your sins and mine. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus and nowhere else. Second, what else does it mean? It means Jesus is God. Jesus is God. The scribes weren't wrong about that part. Only God can forgive sins. Well, Jesus is showing them I do have authority to forgive sins. And what does that mean? Who is Jesus claiming to be in front of everyone? You got that right. I am God. I am the Son of God, and I'm the one who can forgive sins. And I'm the one who can heal a man who couldn't walk five minutes ago. He has the power and the authority to forgive sins because he is the Son of God himself. Third, notice again, and this this might be... uh, can't say it's the most important thing, but notice again, it's a theme that is throughout Mark so far, the compassion of Christ for suffering sinners. Jesus had mercy on that man, not only in forgiving him, but also in healing him. And he wasted no time doing it. He didn't make him jump through hoops. He didn't do anything like that. You, again, you never see Jesus turning suffering sinners away from himself in the Gospels. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. He forgives. He still forgives and heals sinners like us even today. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise. We thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to be made in the likeness of, of, of sinful flesh that he might die in our place and be raised again the third day for our justification. We thank you for these accounts in the Gospels, we thank you for these uh, records that show us that show us dramatically the compassion of your Son for sinners such as us. We thank you for that. We thank you that He has the authority as your Son and as the Christ to forgive our sins. We thank you that His death paid for every last one of our sins, those of us who are in Him by faith. And we ask that you would give us grace, work in our hearts, that we might remember these things, that we might think much upon the power, the authority, and the compassion of of your Son, his willingness to forgive and to accept and heal, that he doesn't break the bruised reed, that he's compassionate upon us. He knows knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows our weaknesses. He's had the weaknesses we've had except without sin. We thank you for our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We do pray that if anybody does not yet know you, and are still in their sins, that you might uh, have compassion on them even now, grant repentance and faith, that they might know the real joy uh, of forgiveness of sins that only comes through faith in Christ. For it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.